pray. Father in heaven, um, this is a busy week in our nation, and we pray for our members, our attenders, our visitors, our family and friends that are connected with us, that we would be safe in our travels, that we would be safe in our celebration, that we would be responsible to you. We pray, Father, that we would truly celebrate a time of thanksgiving, that we would give our thanks and our gratitude to you, that our eyes would be focused on you and not our preparations and not our busyness and not our travel and not our rushing about, not in revelry and good time, but that we would take time aside to give you thanks. Father, we give you thanks for all the good that you do for us, even knowing that that good is hard for some to see. We pray for them. Father, we pray for uh, the nation of Thailand this morning, where so many still do not know your name. And there is a desperate need of churches from region to region and city to city. We pray, Father, that the leaders and the um, pastors and the thinkers of the Thai church would strategize ways to bring the gospel to all people there. That they would find creative ways to translate worship into the native culture and tongue, that they would find ways to communicate the riches of the gospel story that are intelligible in that culture, not necessarily relying on the way it has been heard and been told by missionaries from other cultures, but distinctive Thai expressions of the timeless truth. We pray that there would be a an overflow of, of gospel fruit in that country as a result. And then their eyes would be open to the giver of all good things, and they would give thanks as they ought. Father, we pray for all the places that we see across the world uh, that are plagued by violence this morning. We think particularly of the... Uh, Palestine and Israel conflict, and we continue to pray for our brothers and sisters, the worshipers of the Messiah, who are Arab, who are Jew, who are Palestinian, who are Israeli, that you would help them to stand fast in their faith in this trying time, and even in the midst of the hostilities, be a bold witness to the glorious grace of Jesus Christ, to Jew and Gentile, Jew and Arab alike. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, happy uh, Thanksgiving week. And we know that this is a season of gratitude for some of you who are internationals. Um, maybe you don't realize that this is, perhaps strangely, the holiday that Americans travel the most at. Uh, the three busiest days for travel in the United States are Tuesday, Wednesday, and next Sunday. The U.S. Department of Agriculture estimates that we will eat 46 million turkeys. And since the average turkey sold is probably a bit north of 200 are 20 pounds, that means that we probably eat more than uh, a billion pounds of turkey. We'll consume about 50 million pumpkin pies, 250 million pounds of mashed potatoes, 80 million pounds of cranberry, and that's f more than four pounds of food per person for one meal and we've not gotten to gravy or stuffing or dressing or rolls or sweet potatoes or mac and cheese or collard greens or green bean casserole. 
And we do all of that in the name of gratitude. We like to say we're thankful for our blessings, and generally we mean that the, we're thankful for the good things in our lives. Those are the blessings, whether it's family or a job or it's wealth or it's whatever. Uh, but we don't know who we're thankful to, do we? Which is strange, but, but we're thankful. What does that mean, though, to say that we're thankful for our blessings? What does it mean even to be blessed? How do we get in on that blessing so that we can be thankful? I think for most of us, it's just sort of a throwaway word, and it's anything that we're happy to have. But for some of us, we see blessing as, as something real, something tangible, something we should pursue, or at least something we can try to pursue. And, and, and that has created an entire market for people seeking blessing. The internet is littered with websites on steps on how to receive God's blessing. At least they, at least they acknowledge that the blessings have a source, that it's God. But are there really steps to finding blessing? Is it a pattern? Is it a process? Is it a checklist? And then we look out on our world and we see a war between Israel and Gaza that started with a, a string of terrorist attacks that killed about 1,200 people, and those attacks led to swift retaliation so that in just over 40 days, nearly 10 times that number of Gazans, almost 12,000 Gazans have been killed. That's nearly one out of every 200 people. And as a result, some tell us that we're supposed to support Israel at all costs, and others tell us to hate the Jews. Several hundred thousand have died between Ukraine and Russia. Some 40,000 or more are dead in the civil war raging in Myanmar. That's just a fraction of bloodshed that we see at the moment. And so when we look on it, maybe we begin to see our material blessings and our hunger for more as a bit self-absorbed, maybe even, maybe even silly. But then we also might get a little pessimistic, and we might wonder if blessing is even real, or if it's even possible. Well, turn with me to Genesis chapter 9. The story in Genesis chapter 9, the, the bottom of that chapter, starting in verse 19, might seem a bit strange. But it's a story about blessing, about how it can be lost and where it can be found. If you're hoping for a breakthrough and blessing in 2024, then this passage might be one strangely to pay attention to. Let's read it, uh, starting in verse 19 of chapter 9 and then down through the end of the chapter. Excuse me, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and, Japh Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This passage teaches us three things about blessing that we need to be aware of. And the first truth about blessing is that it is sure. 
Blessing is a consistent theme in the book of Genesis. If you want to learn what the Bible says about blessing, there might not be a better place to start than at the beginning because some variation of the word bless appears in Genesis more times per chapter than any other book of the Bible. But it's probably not where you go, but that's the facts. That's just the numbers. In fact, the very first words God speaks to human beings is a blessing. It says, God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. Five times already in this book, we've come across blessing, and they are all at critical moments. But I want to turn to the last one that we've come across, the one at the beginning of chapter 9. Noah and his family, as we talked about last week, they had, they had just spent a long journey inside the ark where they, in the presence of God, found salvation. The ark came to rest in the mountains of Ararat, which seems to be very similar in location to where the Garden of Eden had once been. And the family leaves the ark after the ground has entirely dried out, and God speaks to Noah and his family there in verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Noah has become something of a new Adam, a new man. There, there is no Eden here, though, and there's certainly no garden that God is going to plant for Noah to keep. And going back to Genesis 3, God cursed the ground because of Adam's sin, and the result is that work would then be hard. Noah's descendants would not get to enjoy the work of maintaining God's perfect creation because God's creation had been spoiled by Noah's ancestors. But all that aside, God still blesses Noah and his family with the same blessing that he gave to Adam and Eve so many years ago. And that's important backstory because it makes the, what we read in the beginning of our passage this morning so relevant. The sons of Noah went forth from the ark. These three were the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Now whether we take whole earth to, to mean the planet or the whole tract of ground in which Noah and his descendants make their lives doesn't matter for this point. God blessed them and he told them to fill it. And these verses say that that's exactly what happened. Now, uh, the dispersal of these people, that's a topic for next week. That's chapter 10. But we're interested in the fact of it, that it happened. The earth was filled once again. And that tells us that God's blessings are sure. He blessed them to be fruitful and multiply, and they did. God gave his blessing to Adam. Adam's name is Adam. It's Adam, mankind. And God gave his blessing to to Adam, and so in doing so, he is giving his blessing to all Adam, all mankind. Things went really south. Adam and his wife rebelled against God. They brought death on themselves and all of their descendants. Creation was cursed because of that treachery. Wickedness continued to grow despite righteous men like Abel and Enoch. But God's blessing remained. The people grew and they filled the earth. But then wickedness increased to a level that broke God's heart. And when his patience ran out, his justice stood fast and he judged mankind. God, God judged Adam and he brought a flood. We mentioned last week. Um, the people of other cultures, especially cultures nearby, had flood stories. But in some of those, in the most famous of those, in the most similar of those, 
The problem was that human beings had been fruitful and had multiplied. And in their expansion, they annoyed the gods. That was a problem. But in Genesis, the problem is different. Their growth, their expansion, their filling the earth is the product of God's blessing. That's not the problem. In pagan myths, humans got too annoying to the gods. But in Genesis, the one God had his heart broken because the people he wanted to be great, the people he wanted to hear, the people he wanted to be near to him had strayed from him. It's the exact opposite problem. But hearing that, we might think that the moral of the story of the flood is that God was wrong. That he was wrong about man. And, and because he misjudged us, we needed to shrink our population. So he wipes it out. But that's not what we see at all, is it? God does see a need to start over, in a sense, because his justice had to punish this out-of-control sin. But rather than change his mind about the idea of population, he doubles down on it. He blesses Noah and his descendants to restart the work of filling the earth. He restates his blessing on them. And as verse 19 makes clear, God's blessing held. God wanted a full earth, and he got a full earth. God's blessings are sure. If you are a Christian, you probably know that in God's word, the Bible, there are many promised blessings. You may wonder at times if you've lost them or if you could lose them. You may wonder if your mistakes or your sins could cause you to miss out on God's blessings that were once given to you? The answer is no. No, because God's blessings are sure. In Ephesians chapter 1, we get this glorious sentence that stretches from verse 3 to verse 14. Your Bible isn't written that way because Paul's just too complex for English. But the beginning goes like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He's speaking to Christians here, and, and Paul is saying that Christians have every spiritual blessing. We don't necessarily have every material blessing. We don't necessarily have every physical blessing. But what is that to someone who has every spiritual blessing? If you have every spiritual blessing, the blessings that are in the heavenly realms far above this decaying world of war and violence, what are the blessings here to you? There. In an eternal land, we have every blessing. The most cherished blessing for Christians, though, is what Paul writes in verse 6 of Ephesians 1. Paul writes there that this great activity of God was to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. beloved. So we have been blessed with God's glorious grace. Grace is his free gift. And what was that gift? We know that it is our salvation, our rescue from the just judgment of God against the sin of this world. By God's grace, by his goodness, it is possible to escape that judgment, even as Noah escaped the judgment in the ark of rescue. Christian, this blessing of God's grace cannot be lost. God's blessings are sure. They are fixed. They, 
are always completed. No human being or group of human beings, no matter how corrupt they get, no matter how many daughters they marry off to spiritual beings, like it says in Genesis 6, no matter how many illicit fruits they eat, no one can thwart God's plan to bless you. His blessing is sure. Jesus promised us in John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. How comforting. How comforting is it to know that we can rest easy at night, our hearts, our minds free from the worry of what tomorrow might bring, let alone eternity, because God's blessings are sure. They will not be removed. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is a reason to sing praise. That is a reason to give thanks. That is a reason to sleep well. God's promises are sure. But, and you knew a but was coming. The second point of this passage makes something clear that's a lot more sobering. If you search your Bible, even in English, you can do this in English the, the, for the forms of the word bless. You'll find over 500 of them. The opposite of blessing is cursing. And here's some good news. Variations on the word curse are well under 200 in the Bible. So you might say that the Bible seems on the surface to be much more interested in God's blessing than cursing. But through the end or, or through the beginning of chapter 9, blessing and cursing are even in the polls. Five votes in favor of each. That's not good. And we probably know why. There was a lot of cursing in Genesis 3 after the fall. There was more in chapter 4 when Cain murdered his brother Abel, and the curses of the fall are remembered in chapters 5 and chapter 8. They know the weight of this mess that they're in, and they are saddened by it. It's not possible to lose God's blessings, but it is possible not to be in on them in the first place. If blessing is about God's favor and so having access to the good things of God, then cursing is about being in God's disfavor and not having access to the good things of God. And that's where we get this strange story. Noah becomes a man of the soil, a farmer, and, and he plants a vineyard. And after some time... He has wine, and he gets drunk. We don't know how long, uh, but it would seem that uh, at least many of the children of his children have been born by this point, and uh, it takes, because I, I research things like this, usually about three years from the time you plant a grapevine to the time you can, at the minimum, get enough fruit to produce wine. So it's been some time. And somewhere in that stretch of time, he has some wine, and he gets drunk. Now, given what happens next, was, was Noah at fault? This is a, you know, a thing that plagues Bible readers, and it plagues scholars, too. Was he sinful? Was he guilty of something? But Genesis 9 isn't really interested in answering that question. We'd have to look at the rest of Scripture for that. Wine was used in the sacrificial system of ancient Israel, so we know that it had a purpose and it had a point. It was used for good. In fact, Scripture teaches us that one of God's blessings for his people is that they would have no shortage of wine. And in fact, one of his curses is often that he removes wine. 
Psalm 104 praises God for the blessings of agriculture, including wine, when it says, you cause the grass to grow for livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. But the Bible also consistently warns that overindulgence in wine can have disastrous consequences. So famously, Solomon warns in his Proverbs, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So it seems like the fundamental problem with alcohol in the Bible is not the drunkenness per se, but the fact that the drunkenness prevents a person from hearing and responding to God in obedience. It causes a person to make bad decisions, which can be disastrous. It can cause a person to be vulnerable and to be weak, which is not a position fit for serving God. In moderation, it gladdens the heart. In excess, it's destructive. And the line between those two can be very thin. It can be very hard to see. And Noah crossed it, a move that was at the very least foolish. And it places him in a vulnerable and weak position, causes him to remove his clothes and, and lay in some sort of disarray in his tent. Maybe he got warm and, uh, from the alcohol and he, he threw off his clothes. Maybe he just got a little silly. Did a little jig in his tent. Uh, maybe he stumbled toward his bed and his clothes just kind of came unraveled. But, but one way or another, he becomes uncovered. Today, we almost celebrate nakedness. But even in that, it's only in certain contexts, right? We generally would see a person who was drunk and naked as an embarrassment, at least to themselves, it's shameful even to us today. But the human form was particularly private in the ancient world of the Near East. We remember, maybe, that it was shocking that Adam and Eve were in the garden and they were naked and they were unashamed. That was pointed out in Scripture because it was weird. And when they realized their nakedness and the significance of it, their immediate response was to cover themselves and hide. Now, in theory, Noah is in the privacy of his home, his tent. But of course, sometimes people are in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I don't know any customs about why his son would come in. Maybe he just wanted to borrow a cup of wine. But... Whatever the reason, Ham comes across his naked father. And that would have been deeply shameful for Noah. Deeply shameful. And it would have been a cause of shame for Ham in that culture as well. But instead of being ashamed, Ham tells his brothers about it. Now, there's a theory, a couple different versions of this, that what Ham did was actually much worse than just seeing his dad. The theory is that he did something sexually inappropriate with either his dad or his mom. Um, it's possible. There, there are some linguistic things going on there that might suggest that, but I think after I researched it, I don't think it holds water. Um, I think we just don't appreciate how deeply shameful this entire affair would have been in that culture. And the inappropriateness of that moment can be seen in how Noah's other two sons, Shem and Japheth, respond by contrast. Because while Ham happens to see his dad and then happens to tell his brothers, we get, by comparison, quite a bit of detail about how they took the garment laid it on their shoulders and walked backwards into the tent and that reiterating the fact that their faces were backward, it confirms that they did not see his nakedness. They 
slowly, apparently walked backwards until they determined they had gone far enough. Maybe his toes peeked out over the cloak and they knew that they could leave the garment and place without seeing him. The basics of God's law, you know those big Ten Commandments teach us to honor our father and mother. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that it's a positive command? It's not a negative command. We have negative commands like do not murder. But the commandment is not do not dishonor your father and mother. That's not the command. See, that there are many neutral things that we could do that would not dishonor our parents. But those things don't also positively honor them. And so there is actually a call to action when it says honor your father and mother. It is not a call to non-action. It is not a do not command. It is a do command. And yet when Ham gossips about his father's naked body lying in drunken stupor, that's not neutral. That's outright dishonoring. And although that might seem mild to us in 2023, it's one of the big ten. It's one of the, it's one of the main ones. And, and so maybe the problem is not that this seems mild to us. The problem is that our hearts see the demand by God to honor our parents as something small and mild. And so Shem and Ham, or excuse me, so Shem and Japheth don't just tell Ham to shut up. They don't just ignore the whole affair, sort of take a neutral, keep our mouths quiet about this approach. They honor their father. They positively do something and try to restore his dignity in some small way by covering him. And if that seems like a bit much, again, maybe it's because we've lost sight of what it means to honor someone. And yet they remove his shame by covering him. What a way to honor their father. So it's a short story, but it's a, it's a depressing one. Noah, the the righteous man, blameless in his generation, the man who walked with God, this guy got so drunk that he ended up largely naked and either passed out in his tent or otherwise unable to respond to his environment. If we had hoped that Noah would be a better Adam and rescue us all, our hopes are already dashed. And we read at the end of this passage that all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. He died just like we read over and over in chapter 5. He died just like so many before him. If we had hoped that God's judgment would cleanse the world of sin once and for all, Ham, if not Noah, quickly proves it wasn't the case. He breaks the fifth commandment. Corruption was washed away in the flood, but sin remained, and sin brings a curse. The way it did in Genesis 3, so it does in Genesis 9. And so Noah lifts up his voice. He says, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. This is the first time in Scripture that a person curses another person. Noah still seems to be all right with God, even if we now know that he's not perfect. And he speaks like something of a a prophet here, and he curses Ham's son, Canaan. Why Canaan, though? Why not Ham? And and that's, that's a good question. We might say that Ham was a curse to his father, so his son would be cursed. Sort of a punishment fits the crime situation. But maybe it's simple enough to say that corruption spreads from generation to generation, doesn't it? It can be broken, of course, by God's grace, by God's power. But corruption spreads from father to son to grandson to great-grandson. 
One corrupts another who corrupts another who corrupts another. None of us stand alone. A sinful life will corrupt down the line. And, and maybe part of it is that Noah knows that God has already blessed Ham himself. And God's blessings are sure. But that doesn't mean his bad behavior can't still corrupt his descendants. Whatever the exact reasoning, it proved true. Thousands of years later, the descendants of Canaan would be subjugated by the descendants of Shem, the Israelites. It's not clear when the slavery to Japheth took place. The Bible is more concerned with the Semites, the descendants of Shem. That's where we get that word. But it does prove true. Just as an aside, and I, I think we have to touch on this based on the world we live in, there's this old racial theory that argues that the curse of Ham that the descendants of Ham were the Africans, and, and therefore it was okay or even right to enslave them. That is nonsense, and it is not an accurate reading of the Bible. The curse is pronounced on Canaan, not Ham. We just read it. And, and it's true Ham and his descend the descendants of Ham are, are described in livi as living in Africa and some other places, but in Africa. But the places they're living, are the, the, they're on the Mediterranean Sea and the, the Red Sea and the Nile Delta. It's not what we normally think of from the slave trade as sub-Saharan. And, and it never mentions skin color. In fact, skin color is hardly ever mentioned in the Bible. It's a afterthought. They didn't quite think in those terms. It's questionable whether any of Ham's descendants would have been sub-Saharan at that time, for that matter. None of them are from West Africa, where we kidnapped, Americans and Europeans kidnapped men and women for slaves. From West Africa, not the Mediterranean, not the Red Sea, not the Nile Delta. And by the way, kidnapping was punishable by death, according to the Old Testament law. So if you ever hear someone justifying slavery or justifying ethnic differences on some insane theory of race with the phrase curse of Ham, feel free to remind them of the curses that are pronounced on those who twist God's word and call evil good. But this is the second thing. The threat of curse is still alive and well. It's the opposite of blessing. And so it means that it's possible to miss God's blessing, even as the Canaanites largely would many years later. So once we have God's blessings, those blessings are sure. But it's possible to miss God's blessings and be under a curse. So where can we go to find these blessings and avoid a curse? Here's Noah's final words. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So after Noah gets done cursing Ham's son Canaan, we might expect him to bless the sons of Shem and Japheth. Or, since there's no contradiction with God's blessing, maybe Noah would go ahead and just bless his two sons directly. Blessed be Shem, blessed be Japheth. But he doesn't do that, does he? Because listen carefully, he says, blessed be the Lord. Noah begins by blessing the Lord rather than Shem, what does that mean? What does that mean to bless God? We know that God, when he blesses us, the, the good things of God's favor rest on us. But, but what can we add to God? 
The only thing that we have of any value to God is our praise. John Piper, a well-known pastor and theologian, after surveying the Bible's passages on people blessing God, comes to this conclusion. He says, to bless God means to recognize his richness, strength, and gracious bounty, and to express our gratitude and delight in seeing and experiencing it. Blessing God, then, is a form of worship in which we praise God and we express our thanksgiving. Interestingly, then, I I think there's a sense in which this strange story in the Bible becomes the first thanksgiving recorded in Scripture. Shem and Japheth did a very kind thing to Noah. They honored him. They removed his disgrace by gently and lovingly covering his indignities. But Noah knew what we often forget. He knew what may have been best summed up by Jesus' own brother, James. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The good gift of Shem and Japheth had its ultimate origins in God. And so it was proper to give honor, to give thanks, to bless God. Even George Washington understood this. The first president of the United States, he, he pro, made a proclamation for the first Thanksgiving. And he wrote, Now therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday the 26th of November next to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent, uh, beneficent, I can't speak, you know what I mean, (laughs) author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be. Now, uh, George was probably something of a deist, or at least close on that spectrum. He, He would not have suggested thanks to Yahweh, let alone to Jesus, just the great and glorious being who is the author of all that's good. But, but he understood the direction which thanks are ultimately owed. We sit around our tables and say, well, I'm thankful for this, I'm thankful for this, and don't as often say, I'm thankful to someone for those things. Gratitude demands a direction, not just content. It demands a direction. It's owed to God. Noah got that. But when Noah turns to Japheth, he does give something a little bit more like a blessing of a human. He makes a wish for Japheth. So when when God blesses, like when he blesses Adam, when he blesses Noah, he says, be fruitful and multiply. It's like a command that he knows is going to happen. When when humans bless other humans, it's more like a a wish, like may, may you be blessed. May this good thing happen to you. And then we're, we're hoping that in God's providence it, it does. And, and Noah expresses this hope that Japheth will be considered blessed, that he will be great, that he will be powerful and large. And there's a little bit of a play on his name. Japheth means enlarge or grow or spread out. And, and so Noah is hoping that his name becomes a reality. But then he makes this second uh, point. Uh, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, which is, which is weird. Because if, if, if Japheth's going to spread out and grow and be big and great, then what is he going to be doing in the tents of Shem? That seems like a limiting factor. It makes me wonder, there's a play on Japheth's name, And I think there's a a play going on with Shem's name because the name Shem is connected to the word name. In other words, Shem, that's Shem, is the name of Shem, and Shem is the word name. 
in Hebrew. And when you, when you leave that alone, like, so often in, in Scripture or, or even Jews today will, will speak of the name. When they speak of the, the name, it's sort of a, a way to avoid saying Yahweh, the Lord. So the name is the name of the Lord, or just the Lord, because the name stands for everything the person stands for. And, and so maybe there's a little play there. Blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh, the God of the name. And so then I, I think, is there a hint there? And I think there is. That Noah's wish is that Japheth might dwell in the tents of the name. You see, that way the source of Japheth's blessing is at least hinted at to be the same as the source of Shem, that the blessing is in God. And that proves true. So this isn't, I'm not just pulling this out of a vacuum because as you walk down the story of Genesis, you see God's blessing pass from Noah to Shem to Abraham to Jacob, who is called Israel by God. And through Israel comes Moses, the law, and the tent of meeting with all of its accoutrements that are designed to point people back to the Garden of Eden. And there, in that place, God would meet with his people, with his worshipers. And Israel was called to be a light to the nations so that those who came to Israel could find worship of the true God. And through Israel would come a Messiah, a, a king, who would be himself an ark of rescue, not merely from the corruption brought by sin, but from the sin itself and the death it brings. And so Noah's prayer of blessing then is really a prayer that the nations would come to find their blessing by coming to Israel. Not the political state, not the ethnic group, but to that king through whom all blessing was channeled, Jesus Christ. This... Uh, is the last Sunday before the season of Advent. Next week is we begin Advent, which is sort of a made-up season. But it's a made-up season in which we remember the Advent, the, the longing for and the waiting for the coming of the Messiah, the Advent of the Messiah. Even as we reflect on Israel waiting for that Messiah to point us to our need to wait for the arrival of the Messiah to come again. And that leads up to Christmas and then into the new year. And then when our busyness is done, we start looking to figure out how we can break through to the blessed life in the new year. But if you want to experience the blessed life today, or Advent, or in the new year, don't turn on the TV preacher, or the YouTube preacher. Don't look at me. Don't follow the steps on WikiHow. That exists. Go to the source of the blessing to God himself. And God has made that blessing available, channeled it through his Messiah, Jesus Christ, whose advent we await 
knowing he has come once to deal with sin and he comes again to judge the living and the dead. For those of us who are in Christ, who have come to the Messiah, who have fled to the light that he is that entered our world, as John writes in John 1, we can be confident that his blessing and his salvation, his sanctification, our eventual glorification is sure. But it is possible to miss that. It's not possible to lose it, but it is possible to miss it. And you can miss it. You can miss it if you miss the Messiah, if you miss the Christ, if you miss the source and the channel of all God's blessings. Like Japheth, we need to go to Shem because Shem is Israel. We need to go to the name that is above all names because it is at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. If you want to be blessed, there's not a formula, there's not steps, there's not a trick, there's not a ritual, there's not a mantra. There's simply recognizing the need for an ark of rescue in a corrupt and wicked world who has made a way for us. Let's pray. Father, would you show us your goodness? The work that you have done to make a rescue for us. That we might know your blessings and know them more fully. We pray for those who have not experienced your blessing, your ultimate blessings, your greatest blessings of salvation because they have failed to recognize the one through whom they come, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you open their eyes to him? Would you open, for those of us who have our lips, that we might speak plainly and boldly of the hope that we have found and where it can be found. that none might miss out on this blessing for a lack on our part. We thank you, Father, for the sureness of your blessing, the confidence and the peace that it gives us who know you. We give you thanks as is proper. And we ask that you would strengthen us that we might share our reasons for thanks this season. It's in the name of that Messiah, that Christ, that descendant of Shem, that we pray. Amen. Let's praise him once more in song.